are empowered by lay-driven leadership, connecting lay ministries and business people to share Christ in the marketplace in support of the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Good morning, friends, and welcome to our second meeting of the ASI Virtual Spring Convention. We are so glad that you have joined us today. It was such a blessing. Last night's presentations were so amazing. The members in action were so inspiring, and it was so incredible to see God's hand at work in all of uh, the presentations. The messages were so powerful, uh, both from Neil Nedley talking about medical missionary work and the benefits of the New Start plan, they were incredible, and we were so blessed by Pastor Doug Batchelor's message that inspired us for such a time as this. This is the message that we have for this time. The three angels' messages is what the world needs to hear. I'd like to invite you to pray with me as we begin today's message. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the benefit of knowing Jesus Christ. Thank you for the power that you have given to us through the Holy Spirit, that we are able to be partakers of the divine nature. I pray that you will bless our meeting today, that you will inspire us, that you will encourage us, and that you will make the gospel message more real in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I want to just remind us all that the reason that we are here today is that there is a pandemic. Typically, we have several chapter meetings each spring. There are eight chapters representing eight unions. But unfortunately, due to the pandemic, those meetings were canceled. But we were not allowed about to let Satan defeat us. And so we decided to approach 3ABN, who graciously allowed us to share their, their venue and have allowed us to be here. But you know, one thing we want you to take away from this particular weekend is that we're not defeated by a pandemic. We as Seventh-day Adventists, we as ASI members need to remember that we have much more to fear than a pandemic. That will only take our earthly lives. And we want to use this time to recommit our lives to Jesus Christ. We want to use this time to really search our hearts and decide whether or not we are going to cooperate with the Lord in the message that he gave us for this time, which includes the health message. And for this reason, if you'll notice, our program is structured around health and the gospel, the two going together. And you'll see today as we go through the program that we will be having several members in action that are health-related, as well as our first talk, which will be on health. And then we'll move into a, a spiritual talk, but the two go hand in hand. I just want to ask Patty, Patty, what do you have to add to this, this theme that we have, uh, the three angels' messages in times like these? I think that uh, we are living in very unusual times, Andy. And the coronavirus has given us all an opportunity to step back and reflect on some things we don't have time normally to think about. We're busy traveling, we're working, and now we've had time to be home. And I know for many people we felt like that's really a, a burden and we're 
eager to get back to our busy lives, but I think God has given us time to prepare for what's coming on our world and also to bring comfort and a message of hope to the people in our lives. Amen. Rodney, any thoughts on in times like these? What does that, what does that theme mean to you? Well, you know, the message from Pastor Bachelor last night really spoke to me when we were discussing that it's time to wake up. And that really resonated with me because as I look around and as I'm honest, even with myself, I'm sleeping. Yeah. And it's a time mm -hmm. to wake up yeah. to the reality of my own spiritual condition as well as the condition of the world around us. There is a world that needs to be warned. Amen. And God has given us that message. Amen. I think that's very important and we will, we want to bring out in this time things that we should be doing differently. Some may need to lose some weight. We know that this pandemic is significantly affecting people that are overweight or have obesity problems. Ellen White gave us a message of health and we, as we discussed in our, our time this morning, we will be hopefully inspiring each of you to search yourselves, to recognize things in your life that you may do that will help us get to where we are able to hear the Holy Spirit and to respond to His call in our lives. We also want to make sure that we have a spiritual awakening. What is the meaning of the three angels' messages? How does that apply to our lives? Is that just something in Revelation 14 that we just say the words and we don't really know what it means? So we hope this weekend and today as we go through this, this program that this will not just be some ritual, but it will have meaning for you. Rodney, why don't you take us into introduction of what's going to happen next? Sure. We want uh, this to be very interactive. So I'd like for you to take out your cell phone at this time. We want to encourage you to study the book Ministry of Healing. If you will just text ASI Health to 58632, you can participate with us. At this time, we hope and pray that you will be blessed by this beautiful song.
the Lord to take our hearts and seal it for his courts above but we don't want to just go to the courts above by ourselves we want to take someone else with us and what we want to do now is start our members in action that's one of the best parts of ASI and so our first um, presentation this morning will be from Eden Valley and it'll be a nice video showing the farming work that they're doing there we're going to be focusing as I mentioned on health and wellness and truly, the plant-based diet is the way to go. And Eden Valley has a wonderful farm, and they'll be showing it to us and showing us the wonderful, beautiful vegetables. Don't run out and eat anything, but wait now, and you'll see this wonderful Members in Action from Eden Valley. You know, we're really living in some strange times. And I don't think the world has, in modern times, has seen anything like this happen that covers everybody, you know, big businesses, small ministries, and, and everything in between. And people really don't know what to do. In Colorado, the state stay-at-home order came on March 26th. And we were in the middle of a lifestyle session. Some of the other states, um, I think federally, the stay-at-home order had already gone on. And so for that session, Everyone who were to fly in canceled, and we only had three lifestyle guests for that session. And we didn't know what the next session or the se se session after that was going to be. And so, but we prayed, we really prayed about it. And we felt that God was um, opening doors for us to keep our lifestyle program going. One of the big, uh, biggest challenges during this time was to know what to do with the farm because we have a, a fairly robust farm program and we have five farmers markets to supply and we, did, we had plans to, to uh, you know, plant the seeds and to till the ground and to get the greenhouses going, but we didn't know how much to do. We didn't know how long this thing was going to go on. So again, we prayed and the farm manager and us, we decided let's just go on like everything's going to be okay by June when the farmer's market starts. And so they planted lots and lots of things. You know how farmers are? They see dirt in the spring and they have a seed and they just have to get that in the ground. And so we planted seedlings in the greenhouse. We transplanted them into the bigger greenhouses. And then we planted 12,000 plants outside on our outdoor garden. And then it snowed 12 inches. And we didn't know what the results were gonna be. We didn't know if there was those, those little baby plants would survive, but our farmer tells me that most of them will survive. We're gonna to have to replant a few, but not 12,000. You know, the thing about organic farms is just because it's as organic doesn't mean that it's nutritious. A lot of the soil that even grown organically are depleted. And you can really taste the difference in, um, you can taste a difference in the in the produce. So here, our farmer, our farm manager, 
is really mindful of amending the soils, putting nutrients in the soils, and you can taste it. If you bite into a tomato, like everybody should come here and taste a tomato. They, it, it's so good. Our farm also provides fresh produce to our, for our student program, education program, which uh, this year is going to be July 7th through November 21st. And our students will also be working on the farm, learning about agriculture. You know, agriculture is the ABC of education. And we have students that come here that have never touched dirt. And they come to love it. They come to love knowing how food is grown. We just planted 4,000 raspberries and we plan to do a U-pick. We have an old bed that is still producing some, but we just planted 4,000 new plants and we're, we plan to have U-pick. And when people come from the outside to our place, so many of them say, you know, this, this, is, this is so different. Like there's something here. You just feel the peace. And that's what we want people to, to feel when they come here. We want them to feel God's presence. We want to minister to them. We want them to be introduced to Christ, maybe for the first time for, for some of them. And so our farm is not just to provide us with income, which it does, you know, but also to provide uh, food for the whole campus, but also as an outreach to the community. Through this whole thing, we have really seen God work and we've seen amazing provinces, providences um, of God working here at Eden Valley. And the Bible promises us, and it, it's sort of a plan to follow. And it says, do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and petition, present your request to God. None of us know what the future holds, even the near future. We don't know when this lockdown is going to be lifted. We don't know when we're going to go back to business as usual, but we can't go back to business as usual. If nothing else this crisis has taught us is that things can happen so quickly and it has woken us up on campus here. We realize the need to prepare spiritually, individually, but also as a ministry, that when things are opening up again, we need to just hit it and we need to go out and reach as many people as we can. And so towards that end, we're making lots of plans to go out into the community and do all kinds of things. Uh, we want to do health seminars. We want to do cooking schools. We want to do pop-up restaurants. We want to share the gospel. Uh, we're participating with It Is Written's uh, internet prophecy seminar. There's many of us who are virtual Bible workers. We want to go out and meet those people because those are people in our community who are looking to God. And we want to be bold. But in order to do that, we need the Holy Spirit. And so, our pastor, Frank Fournier, has challenged us to pray for the Holy Spirit, to study about the Holy Spirit, and that he might be poured out on us and that we might be ready. What a powerful Members in Action. And that's what we want to focus on right now. We saw the wonderful plant-based food, and I want to just read to you something from the Boston Globe, which is not a Christian magazine. It's the Boston Globe, written by a physician and a PhD in nutrition. We've heard a lot about flattening the curve.
for this pandemic and we talk about wearing masks and social distancing. But have you thought about what really it will take to flatten the curve? These two figured it out. They said, if we want to flatten the curve, protect our economy, and be more resistant to future pandemics, it is imperative, they say, that we reduce diet-related chronic disease and obesity in America. Then they went on to talk about doing this, we need to encourage a plant-based diet. That is not a Seventh-day Adventist speaking. That is a person from the Cleveland, a PhD from the from Tufts, and a physician from the Cleveland Clinic promoting a plant-based diet as a way to flatten the curve to a pandemic. And we can also flatten the curve with coronary artery disease, etc. Patty, I know you've thought about this quite a lot. Tell me about something else that you've been reading about this particular issue of diet. I've been really excited to um, see how the world is coming along and promoting plant-based diet. This is from the New York Times. I think it was just yesterday. The end of meat is here. Amen. If you care about the working poor, about racial justice, and about climate change, you have to stop eating animals. And that's the message we've had for about 160 years. So we praise God. The world is, God is just bringing this message to everyone at Amen. this time. Amen. Thank you, Patty. Rodney, I want you to reiterate to our viewing audience the need to, to cooperate with the Lord in changing their health. So I want you to give the information again and anything else you want to share. Definitely. Thank you so much, Andy. Well, first I wanted to say that as we're thinking about this, it reminds me of a quote in the book Medical Ministry where it says that medical missionary work is the right hand of the gospel. Amen. And in our Members in Action segment, you know, it was so compelling that as soon as the stay-at-home orders are lifted, there will be aggressive service for Amen. Christ. What Amen. a blessing. Amen. And again, I want to invite our viewing audience to study the book, Ministry of Healing. This is a beautiful book that helps us understand step-by-step step how we can be practical medical missionaries. So again, I'd like to invite you to text ASI Health to 58632. Now we will move to our Members in Action segment with uh, Brian Schwartz and Denzel McNeilis talking to us about some of Brian's experiences as a physician. One of the biggest blessings of being in, at an ASI convention is the privilege of being able to have friendship and to be able to fellowship. And I've met some dear friends through our ASI conventions today. And today I have the privilege of introducing to you a dear friend of mine, Brian Schwartz. I couldn't spend the whole time just introduce, talking about his introduction, about how all his accomplishments. But Brian, tell us, what do you do? I'm a, a heart doctor, a physician at Kettering Medical Center in Dayton, Ohio. Brian, I know you have a passion for prayer. I know that you've challenged me and uh, it's been a blessing to be challenged by my dear friend. Can you tell us some stories or some experiences that you've had with prayer? Yeah, absolutely. So let me just um, state at the beginning that when I went into medical practice, I was not comfortable figuring out how to even have a spiritual conversation with patients. Um, I was kind of just embarrassed to bring it up. I didn't know how to make that transition. Um, so it was at the very beginning of an amen conference being challenged by Pastor Mark Finley 
um, that I was, the Lord was working on my heart and I realized that I need to really make this a part of my practice. Up to that point, I would help with stop smoking programs. I would go on a mission trip one or two weeks um, every year. Um, I would help with health programs at our church, but my ministry was my ministry. My work was my work. And the Lord was just tugging at my heart that I needed to learn to do something different. And honestly, the first time that I was challenged to pray with a patient, it didn't go well. It was down at Wildwood by Dr. DeRose where I was doing a rotation. And uh, he said, aren't you going to do the most important part? I'm like, oh, what's the most important part? He says, well, have a prayer with him. I said, oh, yeah. But the gentleman I was taking care of, it had come in with a, a, a laceration of his ear and I'd stitched it up. He was an older gentleman. He was very hard of hearing. And at that point, I had forgotten his name. Um, he couldn't hear me. And I was just screaming, dear Lord, please bless this gentleman to help his ear heal up. And it, I was just flustered, embarrassed. It was uncomfortable. And again, for the next 10 years, I didn't pray with patience. But uh, inspired by Pastor Mark Finley, that just by offering to have a prayer, it can open the door to a spiritual conversation. And I left the very first Amen conference inspired to actually try to, to do that. And it's been uh, radically a life changer in my practice. My practice is no longer um, the place I go to work. It's the place I go to do ministry. So just as a, a, uh, a few examples, uh, one of the first, one, when I came back inspired, this was now over almost 14 years ago, uh, one of the first patients that I encountered was a gentleman named Stephen. And uh, Stephen um, weighed over 300 pounds. Um, he was in his uh, right around 40 years of age and uh, had been living a pretty rough uh, lifestyle. Stephen came in just wearing cut-off sleeves and a leather vest, a bandana around his head, and he came in on his Harley Davidson, and he looked the type. Um, he was binge drinking on the weekends. He was smoking one to two packs per day. He was working down in Cincinnati, so he had about an hour drive every day and uh, just felt like his life was unraveling. He wound up in the emergency room with some very sharp pain in his chest, which after quickly examining him, and he was referred back to us to see in the office and talking to him and examining him, um, realized that pain was not his heart and he'd passed a stress test. But I just looked at Stephen and I, I just said, Stephen, you have every risk factor for heart disease. Your father died in his 40s of a heart attack. You're over 100 pounds overweight. You're diabetic. You have high blood pressure. Your cholesterol is sky high. You're chain smoking one to two packs per day. You're living under an extremely stressful situation. And he shared with me his marriage was falling apart. Just his whole life was coming apart. And I just uh, paused and I said, Stephen, do you believe in God? He goes, well... Not particularly. I went to church once or twice as a kid, and I said, well, that's okay. God believes in you. And I said, would it be all right if I had a prayer with you? And at that point, this rough guy, um, and, you know, and I had been judging people thinking I should pray with the ones that look like they're, they might be going to church mm -hmm. and they might be prone to it. But this one really was testing me. And I, so I said, Stephen, can I pray with you? And he got tears in his eyes, and he just took my hand. He was shaking. And I said, Stephen, before I pray, God has a plan to change your life. And uh, let me just tell you what God's plan is. And uh, I said, God, um, in the Bible, God gave us the very best diet. 
Um, if we follow his principles, it will change your life so that you don't have to follow the genetic history of your father. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have heart disease and have a heart attack in your 40s. And uh, I said, but God's plan is um, eating simple food, a plant-based diet. God doesn't want you to destroy your body through alcohol and tobacco. He, he, he wants you to lose weight and to exercise. You need to get into a support group, um, a church group would be fantastic. You probably need to change where you're working because it's causing so much stress. And uh, I said, but let me, let me pray with you. And um, I just said a simple prayer. I said, Lord, just please, um, Stephen's life is spiraling out of control. I just pray that you would give him hope. And I pray that you would give him the strength to overcome smoking. Um, I prayed, and, and not to interrupt my prayer, but uh, up till this point, I used to tell people, you know, you really should stop smoking. Mm -hmm. And I realized, you know what? I'm just imparting good advice, but it's really legalism. They know they should quit smoking. They don't have the power to make that change. And so instead, I've started shifting that the Lord would give him the power that he lacks to overcome smoking, to change his diet, to change his environment, get back involved um, with the church. And, uh, and the amazing thing is that I didn't see Stephen for a year. I wasn't a very good doctor back then. I did not send Stephen to a five-day stop smoking program. I didn't get him hooked up with a chip program at our church. I didn't even give him a brochure. I gave him absolutely nothing. I just prayed with him. But he left that office. He came back a year later. And my nurse thought, um, she likes to jump to conclusions and thought, oh, Stephen had bariatric surgery. I said, I don't remember him doing that. She says, well, he's lost almost 100 pounds in a year. So I walked in and said, Stephen, did you have surgery? And Stephen was like, no, I just did what you said. And I said, well, Stephen, what happened? He says, well, since the day I left your office, I went on a plant-based diet. Amen. I have not smoked once since I left. I gave up alcohol. I joined a church. My relationship with my wife is fantastic. Um, and I said, how in the world did you do that? He just looked at me and says, well, it's because you prayed for me. Amen. And I believe at that point in my life and my career that Stephen was there for me to be inspired to see what the power of, of just a simple prayer could have. But the, the reality is it's, it's, it's designed to open the door for a spiritual conversation. And now that happens over and over and over again in my practice every day. Um, I don't know who I'm going to pray with, but I know I'm, or, or what the impact's going to be, but I know it's going to have a powerful impact. Mm. You know, uh, you challenged me to, uh, instead of, because I've always just talked to people and they'll say, I'll pray with you. Mm -hmm. I'll pray for you. Mm -hmm. And you challenged me to say, Denzel, don't just say you'll pray for him. Pray for him right then. Yes. And I will tell you, there's just, I can tell stories after stories about how that has changed my experience and also my relationship with the people that I prayed with. But tell us some more stories of what, what you have done. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I became convicted as well. Instead of just saying, you know, I'll keep you in my prayers. I need to just stop right now and pray. And it, it's gotten to the point that I was just two weeks ago at a very important high level meeting between two completely different health systems, one of them not at all religious oriented. And I was there to ask to uh, just come down and talk about our network. And we were talking about some ways that we could blend the two. And I just said, you know, I come from a faith-based um, hospital system. So if it's all right before I start my presentation, I'd just like to have a prayer for us. The reality is, is that God has taken me from where 15 years ago, I couldn't say a prayer with a patient without being embarrassed to where now it's become just a normal thing. Amen. Um, 
I, I have the opportunity to meet people from all walks of life. Somebody, the bad side of town, but also the people that come from gated communities that is not going to get to see Pastor uh, Finley or not going to get to see the evangelist that knocks on their door. They're blocked. They're flying around in their corporate jets. They come to my office and I get to pray with them. And I've had um, atheists um, just say, well, you can pray if you want, but it doesn't mean anything to me. And I say, well, I always want to. And so I say a prayer with them. And sometimes they'll just have tears in their eyes and say, nobody's ever done that again. Um, real quick uh, story. Some people think, well, what if you pray with a patient and then things go uh, really, really poorly? And actually, just this week on Tuesday, I replaced uh, our team replaced a heart valve on a patient. He'd been a patient of mine for over 15 years. And uh, he did great the next day. He went home. Um, and uh, then I got that call at about 2 in the morning yesterday morning, just uh, mm. before we got ready to, to head here, um, that he had died um, mm. that evening. Mm. And so uh, just before I came here, I called his wife and um, just trying to hope to be able to console and inspire her. And instead, she really ministered to me. She mm. said, Dr. Schwartz, I know you're taking this really hard. I know you did everything you could um, to save my husband. Uh, Rick, but I want you to know it just was so important to us the times that we came to your office and you prayed. And when you prayed before this procedure, I have perfect peace about it. I know that he's in God's hands. And it's because you've inspired us. We know that you did everything. I, I know he had a weak heart. I know that he uh, had a chance he wasn't going to make this through it. But, but just because you prayed, I have peace that he's where God wants him to be. And I can live with that. And I, she says, I'm going to continue to pray for you. And just to see the tables turned and realize that Amen. that made an impact on a patient, Amen. that was a very powerful thing. Amen. So people come in, it's challenged me, but now it's become the absolute normal part of my life. In the past few, se in the past few seconds, tell us, how would you challenge our uh, viewing audience today? Yeah, so I'm a physician, and that's we kind of, as in the Adventist tradition of physicians, we'd expect that we're going to engage the spiritual health of our patients. But I've realized that no matter what walk in life you mm -hmm. come from, yes. you're a businessman, and yet you've been challenged to pray. It doesn't matter what you do as a carpenter, um, as a nurse, as a physician, as a teacher. Um, if we can just integrate the spiritual side of our lives into what we do, and just engage with people and just simply say, would it be all right if I offered to pray? You'll see the tears form. You'll see people take your hands. And more times than not, they'll appreciate it. Amen. Powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that powerful message. At this time, we're going to hear from Dr. Mark Sandoval. Dr. Sandoval is the president of Uchi Pines Institute, as well as the health ministries director for the Gulf States Conference. I have been so benefited by his ministry. It has been a personal blessing in my life, and I believe that this talk will inspire you to a deeper conviction that Jesus is our Savior. Hello, my name is Mark Sandoval, and I am the medical director of Uchi Pines Institute, as well as the health ministries director of the Gulf States Conference. And it is my pleasure to share with you this message entitled, The Work of the Right Arm in the Last Days. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your abundant blessings, that you have loved us so much. And Lord, teach us your truth today, and thank you for doing so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We are told that medical missionary work will have a prominent role in these last days, and I want to review with you briefly what that role is. Health reform, I was shown, is a part of the third angel's message and is just as closely connected with it as are the hand and the arm with the human body. The right hand is used to open doors through which the body may find entrance. This is the part the medical missionary work is to act. It is to largely prepare the way for the reception of the truth for this time. Medical missionary work is the entering wedge to the work of saving souls. When properly conducted, the health work is the entering wedge or an entering wedge making a way for other truths to reach the heart. When the third angel's message is received in its fullness, health reform will be given its place in the councils of the conference, in the work of the church, in the home, at the table, and in all the household arrangements. Then the right arm will serve and protect the body. Medical missionary work is the right hand of the gospel. It is necessary to the advancement of the cause of God. When connected with other lines of gospel effort, medical missionary work is a most effective instrument by which the ground is prepared for the sowing of the seeds of truth and the instrument also by which the harvest is reaped. If medical missionary work is the right arm of the three angels' messages, what is the purpose of the three angels' messages? It is to reveal the truth, to warn the world about the deception that it is in, and to repair a people for the coming of Christ. So how does medical missionary work help to accomplish this purpose? The only safety now is to search for the truth as revealed in the word of God as for hid treasure. The subjects of the Sabbath, the nature of man, and the testimony of Jesus are the great and important truths to be understood. These will prove as an anchor to hold God's people in these perilous times. So there are three things that will serve as an anchor to God's people now, and these are the Sabbath, the nature of man, and the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. The health message in particular helps us to understand the second point, the nature of man. Our bodies are made up of cells, 50 to 100 trillion cells in adults, and we have over 250 different types of cells, and each type of cell has a particular type of function. Your body's functions are dependent upon the individual functions of your cells, and if you lose one type of cell, you lose the function specific to that type of cell. Type 1 diabetes and the loss of insulin produced by beta islet cells in the pancreas is an example. But how do your cells function? How do we understand that function? Everything that functions is governed by unchangeable laws. Thermodynamics, gravity, blood pH, body temperature, and a myriad of other functions all are governed by laws, and those laws cannot be changed. The fundamental law of nature is the law of dependency. All things are dependent upon resources outside of itself for life and function. Nothing lives out of itself, meaning that nothing can create the power and resources that it needs to start and continue its own function. This fundamental law breeds other laws, including the laws of thermodynamics, which reveal to us that all energy necessary for a system to function must come from outside that system. In other words, everything that functions must have a power source outside of itself in order to power its function. This law of dependency also gives rise to the law of cause and effect, from which we understand that every effect must have a cause and every cause must produce an effect. If the effect is present, the cause is also present because if the cause is removed, the effect must cease. Why? Because no effect can produce itself, for it is dependent upon power and materials outside of itself in order to function. 
you will never find an effect without a cause. Because of this, there can be no such thing as chance. There is nothing that is random. In the laws of God in nature, effect follows cause with unerring certainty. The curse causeless shall not come. The will of God establishes the connection between cause and its effects. There is also the law of service. All things both in heaven and on earth declare that it is the great law of life. It's the law of service. The infinite Father ministers to the life of every living thing. The same law of service is written upon all things in nature. The birds of the air, the beasts of the field, the trees of the forest, the leaves, the grass and the flowers, the sun and the heavens and the stars of light all have their ministry. Lake and ocean, river and water spring each takes to give. Nothing was made for itself, meaning that there is no purpose in itself. Its purpose comes through its function. This law of service shows that it is the individual responsibility of each thing to take in that which it needs, and it does so for the purpose of giving away or ministering to others. You need oxygen, but the oxygen doesn't force its way into you. You must breathe it in. You need water, but water doesn't flow into you. You must drink it. You need food, but the food doesn't jump down your throat. You must eat it. Everything in creation must first take what it needs, and then it must use that which it took to minister to the needs of others. The cells function by law, unchangeable law. The law of dependency shows us that the cell is dependent upon power and resources outside of itself in order to function. And the law of service shows us that it is the cell's own responsibility to take in those things it needs for the purpose of giving or ministering to others by the production of its products, hormones, insulin, glucagon, and so on. The cells, therefore, must have a supply of those raw materials that it needs in order to function. And those raw materials are brought into the body through the various organ systems. Oxygen through the respiratory tract, water and food through the digestive tract, sunshine and warmth through the, the skin, etc. And, and then those raw materials are distributed to all the cells through the blood. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. But every cell in the body must be regulated and coordinated in its function, and every cell must have the power by which it functions. Just as an engine must have fuel and a spark in order to ignite the fuel, similarly, living, living systems must have fuel and power to utilize that fuel. The fuel and the power or the spark are different. What is the power for the cells? It is electricity. Cells function as electrical units, regulating the concentration of positively and negatively charged particles inside the cell with resulting voltage, current, and resistance, all of which are electrical properties. And what is it that coordinates the function of every cell in the body? It is the nervous system. Every function in the body is ultimately regulated by and coordinated through the nervous system. But the law of dependency shows us that the nervous system itself is dependent upon a power and fuel outside of itself. And in order for it to function, the fuel comes through the blood, but where does the power or spark come from? It must come from outside of the nervous system. It comes from the spirit. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. God created the body from the dust and the spirit of man from the breath, and the combination of the two makes the soul. The functions of the soul are dependent upon each of its two parts, and it can have no function without both parts. 
Software cannot function without hardware, and hardware cannot function without software. Separate the spirit from the body, and there's no function of either. When software is combined with hardware to make a functional computer, the software doesn't cease to be software, and the hardware doesn't cease to be hardware. Each remain what they are, and each are responsible for certain aspects of the computer's function. But they only have function when they are put together. So it is with the body and the spirit which comprise the soul. We find a wonderful thing in the Bible. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You and I are created in God's image. In creation, what came first? That which was physical or that which is spiritual? Who created all that there is? Well, God did. And what did he do to create it? God said, and it was so. Jesus tells us that God is spirit. And he says, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. So it was from that which it was spiritual that everything physical was created. And you and I are created in God's image. We function like he functions. And to us, that which comes first is the spiritual which then impacts the physical. Is thought physical or spiritual? How much does it weigh? What is its density? How many atoms make up a thought? And what in what arrangement? Thought is spiritual. And in order for you to have thoughts, you must have a spirit. I want to clarify that the spirit itself cannot think. Thought is a function of the soul, which is a combination both of the spirit and the body. But we have been led to believe that the brain has the capacity to think on its own outside of the presence of a spirit. Where does this idea come from? Evolutionary theory, which is the foundation principle of modern science, teaches us that matter is self-existent, that it is self-sustaining, that it can organize itself into complex systems, that it can create life through those complex systems, that matter can self-regulate, meaning give itself commands, mutate itself, and destroy itself, that matter can be conscious, can think and feel, and have all of the spiritual capacities of animals and man. The more complicated these systems are, which are only made of matter, the more complex the spiritual capacities. This is what we have been taught by evolutionary theory through science, and as a result, we believe that the brain is conscious and can think and feel. We believe viruses and bacteria can mutate themselves, and we believe that cells can program themselves to die. All of these things and more we believe because of the evolutionary theory. But according to the law of dependency and the law of service, none of this can be true. It is the spirit that brings these capacities to the brain. Spiritual information, that which we believe to be truth, is taken in by the spirit and then made available to the brain through decisions. When the brain takes in the decision, an electrical impulse is generated. That electrical impulse is conducted through the nervous system to the various parts of the body, which generates chemicals that the cells take in. When the cells take in these chemicals, it changes how they function. If the spiritual information that the spirit takes in is true and fulfills the spirit's need for love, then that which the spirit gives to the body, its decisions will produce exactly the electrical impulses that is needed in order to control or regulate the cells or the body so that it can function correctly. If the spiritual information that the spirit takes in is false and does not fulfill the spirit's need for love, then that which the spirit makes available to the body, its decisions, when taken in by the brain, will produce electrical impulses that result in the release of chemicals in a way that, when taken in by the cells, dysregulates their function so that they dysfunction. 
This is how the mind creates disease in the body, and it is responsible for 90% of diseases. Sickness of the mind prevails everywhere. Nine-tenths of the diseases from which men suffer have their foundation here. Let us put disease in this context. Is disease a cause or an effect? It is an effect. Then can the disease exist by itself? No. Something else is producing or causing it. That which the disease needs in order to exist comes from outside of itself. If the source is correct, the function will be correct. If the source is wrong, the function will be wrong. There is a divinely appointed connection between sin and disease. No physician can practice for a month without seeing this illustrated. If he will be observing and honest, he cannot help acknowledging that sin and disease bear to each other the relationship of cause and effect. The physician should be quick to see this and to act accordingly. Teach them that disease is the result of sin. Impress their minds with the necessity of denying self and obeying the laws of, of, of health. We see clearly that sin is the cause of disease. Disease is simply the physical manifestation or effect of sin. Let's look at the definition of disease from the spirit of prophecy. Disease is an effort of nature to free the system from conditions that result from a violation of the laws of health. In the case of sickness, the cause should be ascertained, unhealthful conditions should be changed, wrong habits corrected, then nature is to be assisted in her effort to expel impurities and to reestablish right conditions in the system. Here we see that disease is not the problem, but simply the manifestation of the problem. It is the fire alarm in the house that is burning down. It is the rumble strips on the side of the road letting you know that you are off the road. Disease is good, not bad. It lets you know that something is wrong. The will of God establishes the connection between cause and its effects. Fearful consequences are attached to the least violation of God's law. All will seek to avoid the result, the disease, but will not labor to avoid the cause or the sin which produce the effect. The cause is wrong, the effect right. Here we see that it is not the effect that is wrong. In fact, the effect is never wrong. It is always right by law because the effect always is there to manifest the cause. It is the cause that is wrong. And what is the cause of disease? It is a violation of the laws of health. It is sin. The laws of nature are the laws of God as truly divine as are the precepts of the Decalogue. The laws that govern our physical organism, God has written upon every nerve, muscle, and fiber of the body. Every careless and willful violation of these laws is a sin against our Creator. So, violation of the laws of health is sin, and sin is the cause of disease. Our understanding of health and disease is also tainted by the evolutionary theory of modern science. Modern science tells us that you can have an effect without a cause, random occurrences that happen by chance, that disease is the result of chance. So we talk of disease in terms of probability and risk factors, that disease can only be managed because the cause cannot be found and removed, that disease comes from external sources, and that the solution to these external threats is external measures. That disease is solely a physical problem and therefore the solution is a physical solution. And that the solution to spiritual problems is found internally and can be fixed by self-help methods. Jesus was a living contradiction to the evolutionary theory for he was never susceptible to anything he contacted. He could not be defiled or diseased. He said, the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. 
And of the Israelites, we are told, the Lord had promised that if they would obey his commandments, no disease would rest upon them. The word of God and the laws of nature clearly show us that no effect is without a cause. Therefore, there is nothing that is random or by chance. That disease is caused by sin, and therefore the cause can be removed and the disease can be cured. That susceptibility to disease comes from within and not outside of the individual. And that the solution must address the internal susceptibilities, leading one to cooperate with God and by love obey God's laws. When we use natural law and the word of God as the standard by which we evaluate disease, health, and healing, we are led to the conclusion that the problem lies inside of us, not outside of us. That we have a spirit that directs the functions of our bodies, that disease of the body is a manifestation of a problem in the spirit, and that the solution to the problem is a spiritual a solution. This drives us and our patients to the gospel as the solution to their physical diseases. When the gospel is received in its purity and power, it is a cure for the maladies that originated in sin. Not all this world bestows can heal a broken heart or impart peace of mind or remove care or banish disease. The life of God in the soul is man's only hope. We are told that to make plain natural law and urge obedience of it is the work that accompanies the third angel's message to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. As we look at natural law and begin to see the implications of believing natural law, we cannot help but realize that we have been deceived by the all-pervasive system of evolution and modern science. This system has found its way into virtually every educational system and every subject of study. There are only two forms of information, truth or lies, and there is only one originator of each uh, form of information. God is the originator of truth, and the devil is the originator of lies. When you eat an apple, the apple is broken down and it, into its basic elements and then assimilated. It's brought into the body and made a part of the body. Similarly, when we take in a piece of information and believe it, it is assimilated. It's brought into us and made a part of us. But we can only assimilate a piece of information if we believe that it is true. If we believe that it is false or a lie, we will not assimilate it. Worship is not so much about adoration as it is about assimilation. The one you worship is the one you trust. The one you trust is the one whose information you believe and assimilate. That information becomes a part of who you are and influences how you behave because you always act according to that which you believe. So if you believe that worship is adoration and you come to God to adore him and experience a warm fuzzy feeling, but then you believe and assimilate the lies of the devil, you in reality worship the devil whose information you assimilated, not God whom you claim to adore. And how do you know which information you have assimilated or not? It will be revealed in how you act because you always act according to that which you believe. The controversy at the end of time will be a controversy over worship. In fact, it has always been a controversy over worship. We have just understood it to be within the context of religion. We have not understood it to be within the context of believing a lie versus believing the truth in general. I believe that the biggest and most widely accepted religion in the world is evolution. And the most widely accepted church is modern science. And this system has opened the way for the deceptions of the Roman Catholic Church to be nearly universally accepted. In past 
ages, when men were without God's word and without the knowledge of the truth, their eyes were blindfolded and thousands were ensnared, not seeing the net spread for their feet. In this generation, there are many whose eyes become dazzled by the glare of human speculations, science falsely so-called. They discern not the net and walk into it as readily as if blindfolded. When pride and ambition are cherished and men exalt their own theories above the word of God, then intelligence can accomplish greater harm than ignorance. Thus, the false science of the present day, which undermines faith in the Bible, will prove as, a, as successful in preparing the way for the acceptance of the papacy with its pleasing forms, as did the withholding of knowledge in opening the way for the, its aggrandizement in the Dark Ages. Ooh. And the subtler forms of this system of belief have found their way into our church, into our schools, into our healthcare systems, into our worldview. The three angels' messages reveal to us the truth in contrast with the error. They show us that there is a master deception that is seeking to swallow up the whole world, and it calls all who believe the truth to warn the world about the deception and reveal to them the truth, that as many as possible can be saved that they may see their absolute need of the everlasting gospel to save them, that in response to the gospel they will fear God, they'll love him, and give glory to him by reflecting his character in their lives, that they will worship the creator by believing and assimilating his truth, including the truth of the continued authority of his law and the seventh-day Sabbath, that they may stand in the judgment that is based upon God's law and be acquitted because they are in harmony with that law through grace." that those who are transformed by the gospel will have the patience of the saints, will keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And the three angels' messages call everyone to come out of all deceptions into the one and only truth of God's word. And that the health message, the medical missionary work, is the right arm that helps to open the door so that people can see the deceptions they are in and see the truth for what it really is that they may worship God by believing and assimilating his truth, that they may be prepared for the coming of Christ. The book of Daniel was not written merely as a historical account of Daniel's life. It was written specifically for those living in the last days of earth's history. And just as in Daniel's day, the test first comes as a spiritual test in the context of a health question, that is what is happening in the world right now. We are in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel's chap chapters 3 and 6 are coming. The test then becomes a test of corporate worship and finally ends as a test of private worship with the death decree for those who do not comply. In the book of Daniel, we find that those only who withstood the first test were the ones who remained faithful in the second and third tests. The health message taught Daniel and his friends to be uncompromising with sin and to preserve strict integrity in the face of subtle and strong temptations and opposition. And this is the work of the right arm in the last days. Will you drink of Babylon's wine and eat its food? Or will you stand for principle even though it means that you cannot buy or sell or that you will die as a result? Will you, by God's grace, live the health message and the three angels' messages so that it will be said of you, here is the patience of the saints, here is one who keeps the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The choice is yours. Thank you.
We chose the words to that song, or we chose that song just for this particular program. Did you hear the last phrase? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We're here today because our hearts are full. Uh, we have a great hope in what God is planning to do in, in our world, and he has a message for us. And we've just heard an amazing message by Dr. Mark Sandoval. I was so blessed by that. And um, Rodney, would you like to share with us how we can find out a little bit more? Definitely. I want to encourage our viewers once again to take your phone and text us at 58632. Text the word ASI Health and you are going to be uh, directed to the most beautiful book, which was quoted several times by Dr. Sandoval, Ministry of Healing. That is a blueprint for us today. You know, our world during COVID, a lot of people have been really afraid of what's coming on our world. And with the health issues combined with all the stress and the changes in our lives, there are a lot of things that we're dealing with beyond just our health, it's our mental health. And the next couple of testimonies we're going to hear today are especially addressing those issues. And first of all, I want to make sure that you know you can hear Dr. Mark Sandoval on audioverse.org. And now we're going to turn our attention to Beautiful Minds and Dr. Daniel Binus. have anxiety, I couldn't sleep at night. My son tried to end his life by suicide twice in high school. I remember wondering what my life was about, where I was going, and what the future had in store for me. I went through some really difficult personal things and wound up in my first bipolar episode. I was at the age of six where I was introduced to sex, drugs, and alcohol all at one time. I think my earliest suicide attempt was um, I was definitely before the age of six. Once you reach this low, and then all of a sudden suicide shows up and says, hi, it becomes a battle. The most profound difference in Beautiful Minds Wellness is Dr. Binus's holistic approach. The intensive outpatient program really helped me because they spend the time to really teach you so many facets of mental health, from cognitive behavioral therapy to diet to anxiety and stress management. And unlike other professionals, when you first come in, the first thing that he wanted to know, besides he wanted to, to um, pray with me because I had been spiritually abused. He just said, uh, you gotta trust me on this one. <laughs> but I think the most important thing that he did is became authentic. This was about true, true help, true hope. This was about someone who's going to listen to me and understand me. I knew that this was a person that was going to save me. This was a safe place. This, yes. It's important for Beautiful Minds Wellness to be operating here in Placer County, and in particular in Auburn, because there is such a lack of accessible mental health services. When it happened to me, there were no options. The facilities now is limited. But the campus is going to provide a wide range and an abundant amount of people who come for help. He's now on scholarship and financial aid at a University of California, self-managing and checking in with Dr. Binus regularly. I, I don't have words for that. Without Beautiful Minds, I would not be breathing in and out right now. 
Thank you, Beautiful Minds, and thank you, Dr. Binus, for all the care that you've given me here, and my life has changed. Thank you, Dr. Binus, for saving my life, because it is without a doubt that I would not be here today if it wasn't for you. I am so thankful, not only from the bottom of my heart, but from my soul, my spirit, that has given me back something I never thought I could ever have. And that is faith, my family, and the loves of others. Welcome Dr. Daniel Binus, Medical Director of Beautiful Minds Medical in Auburn, California. Can you share with us what makes your practice unique? Well, the main thing that we have, have found to be very effective in our mental health treatment is trying to help people address the root causes of their mental illness. And so basically what that means is we use a very holistic approach. And instead of just treating symptoms, we're encouraging people to discover why they're sick in the first place. And we found that as people address those root causes, they get much better um, much more quickly and it's a much more lasting change. And ultimately our goal is to point people to God as the found founder of the mental wellness health principles. And as they found find that connection with, with God, that's where we see the true ultimate healing that really brings great joy in working with people. That must be really rewarding. I'm wondering what it's been like for you with the COVID crisis and what you're seeing in patients that might be different than before. Well, it's really interesting because we've seen a lot of fear going on. In mm -hmm. fact, one of my patients recently said, the virus is fear. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. In other words, people are very afraid of what's happening mm -hmm. right now. They are feeling very insecure because all the things that they've um, tended to trust in, the things of this world, um, they can see how quickly those things can be torn away and how quickly things can change. But we believe that every catastrophe is God's opportunity and our opportunity to see him at work. And so we have had the opportunity to point people to a place of security in God. Um, there's been many patients, for example, that I pointed to uh, Psalm 91 and encouraged them to find that connection with the Lord to uh, find that secret place and to find that safety and security that only God can bring. We've um, also developed uh, many free workshops that have been online for those people that have been largely stuck at home. And uh, we've discussed things like loss and grief, how to stay healthy in the pandemic, science and religion, and how to create loving relationships because a lot of people are really feeling isolated. I'm, I'm sure that's true, and I'm wondering uh, what your, if you can share a little bit about your vision for your practice and how you're managing patients going into the future. Well, we have a vision to create a, camp, a mental health wellness campus where we can offer uh, things like massage therapy, uh, nutritional therapies, 
um, a, having a, a health food cafe, um, having the spiritual resources for people to tap into, support groups, mm -hmm. um, life and health coaching. And uh, even this year, we are actually remodeling a suite in our building to create a pilot wellness center. And uh, this pilot, pilot wellness center will be a proof of, of concept and is arriving just in time uh, that we can actually help address um, the, uh, the, the potential COVID crisis that is going to maybe come again uh, this winter. We're going to be able to offer things like hydrotherapy and, uh, and nutritional coaching and that sort of thing. And Dr. Bynes, can you share with us what this COVID crisis and your work in your practice has meant to you personally? Well, working with minds is the truly the greatest work that has ever been entrusted to us. And I think we often underestimate the privilege of being co-laborers with God. It really changes us and it gives us the opportunity to enter into the joy of the Lord. I want to encourage all of us that we are indeed called to all be mental health medical missionaries. Dr. Bynes, thank you so much. I'm very excited to learn about what you're doing. Thank you for joining us. That was a great Members in Action. Oftentimes we do forget the mind. The Lord does work through us through our minds. And now we'll hear another Member in Action, Pat Arabito, who will be speaking to us. Um, she is the president of CE and CEO of LLT Productions Incorporated. And this will be a, a wonderful interview that Patty Guthrie, one of my co-hosts, did with her earlier this week. I'd like to welcome Pat Arabito with LLT Productions with us today. Pat, you want to tell us what projects you're working on currently? I'd love to. Right now we're working on a series of short videos for social media on the state of the dead. And you might think, you know, that's an odd topic for social media, but everyone has lost someone they know or and everyone is facing death themselves. So it's good for people to know what's happening. Each video is only five minutes and they're very simple. They have a host. Dwight Nelson is our host and the rest is word art and graphics. Each one deals with just one topic out of the state of the dead, like the soul, because most people think the soul is an entity. What does the Bible teach about the soul? The Bible is the authority for these. Resurrection, um, talking to the dead, spirits. Um, so we have a list of about 23 topics, and each one of those can even be approached from different ways. Our goal is to show what God is like in relation to death, because people misunderstand God, especially because of the doctrine of eternal torment. You know, all the major religions of the world believe in the immortal soul and teach the immortal soul. It's really only a very small group of Christians that don't believe the lie that was first perpetrated in Eden. So we're real excited about educating people with these just short and to the point videos about it. And I'm gonna show you a little clip of one of them so you have an idea of what it's like. Go to the little town of Lilydale, New York on a warm summer day. You find the place crammed with visitors, most of them hoping to connect with deceased loved ones. In Lilydale, they say, most everyone is either a psychic or a ghost, or maybe a medium, a witch doctor, a channeler, or a shaman. Lilydale claims to be the world's largest center for the religion of spiritualism. 
That's really interesting, Pat. An interesting and unique way of presenting the state of the dead. I'm interested to know what other kinds of projects you're working on. Well, you know, our focus has always been on prophecy and history, Christian history, and we focused most specifically on the Sabbath and the state of the dead because those are the two topics that people are most deceived on at the end of time. So probably many of our watchers are already familiar with the Seventh Day series, which, by the way, has been translated now into more than 20 languages, mm -hmm. so it's been used all over the world. We also have other materials on the Sabbath. We have a DVD called The Wandering Day. That's also a Sabbath and religious liberty story. It's it's a story that took place in the 30s when the League of Nations attempted to introduce a new calendar to the world. They thought that it would unite the world, but the problem with it was it had an extra day in the year that wasn't part of the week. So it would throw the weekly cycle off by one day or, or throw the year cycle off by one day every year. And it's really an interesting story of how God stopped that from happening. And then also, of course, we focused on the state of the dead with our film, Hell and Mr. Fudge. And probably many of our watchers have seen that film also. It's a feature based on the true story of a man who was hired to find out what the Bible really teaches about eternal torment. And, you know, he was pretty surprised himself to find out that the Bible doesn't teach eternal torment. It teaches a death that's asleep, like just like Jesus called it. So we've had a lot of good response to that film, too. And our current project is just a continuation of our desire to, t to show the world what death really is and how good our God is. That's really beautiful, Pat. It's a unique focus you have in your ministry. How are you advertising or letting people know about these products that you have? Well, of course, right now, everything is social media, especially right now when people are at home. So we have um, Facebook sites, which are, um, which are nice because people can respond to those, and we end up with a lot of nice dialogue with people on those sites. We have Facebook sites for all of our major topics. We have one called Time Talk for sa the Sabbath and calendars. And then we also have websites, and then we have our YouTube channels. And the, the channel for the Dwight Nelson series, we call it Hope After Death. And you can find that on YouTube if you Google that or Dwight Nelson or even the name of some of the videos. And by the way, we would love for people to share those. You're welcome to translate them. You're welcome to share them as broadly and widely as you can. Thank you so much. That's really exciting. Pat, I know that you have a personal interest in, in the topic, particularly of the state of the dead. Do you mind just sharing in a nutshell what that story might be? Sure. You know, like I said, everyone has either lost someone they, they love or we're all facing death. And it happened in my family where I lost my husband and my two oldest sons in a plane crash. And it made eternity in heaven more dear to me. It made the truth that the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming more precious. And it made me just want to share that more than I ever had before. You know, experiencing that kind of grief and devastation really opened my eyes to the fact that so many people in this world suffer. And I mean, you look at the refugees, you look at the natural disasters, you look at pestilence and disease, and, and everybody suffers and everybody needs Jesus. And everybody needs the hope that we have of the resurrection. And, you know, I just really want to share that. And it kind of led too into 
um, me giving some grief seminars in churches too. Not that I ever um, intended to do that out of my own loss, but I think because I know what it's like now, I can connect with people and I really have so much more compassion for the suffering that people endure because of having that kind of suffering myself. And, you know, time passes and you learn to live with it, but it's not like it goes away. It's like you know for the rest of your life what it is to lose people that are most precious to you. Thank you so much, Pat. I'm just thinking about people right now. Uh, do you, are you afraid of death? A lot of people are really afraid right now. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's just asleep. There's no pain in it. And the next thing that you know, if you love Jesus, is you're going to see him. And you're going to get to go and spend eternity with him. And while I wouldn't want death, I think if I really believed in eternal torment and then I go to heaven immediately, I would want death. But I love this life, too. But I look forward to my time with Jesus. Pat, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a blessing. I wish you all the best. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you for that. Patty, I want to thank you for such a wonderful interview. Great job and a great and very important topic, one that actually makes the gospel much more powerful with the understanding that we as Seventh-day Adventists have. And to be able to give people comfort that there is a God in heaven who weeps when we weep and who sorrows over the death of his people. I think it's a wonderful way for us to be able to witness. I want to remind us that we are here today in this studio because of a pandemic. And so our next speaker will be speaking from his home. Sean Boonster is the speaker director of Voice of Prophecy. And when I called to invite him, he said that the Voice of Prophecy offices were closed due to the pandemic and that he'll be recording from his home. He also wanted the viewing audience to know that he will look different because of his hair. But you know, the message is going to be very powerful. So now we will hear from Sean Boonstra. Hey, ASI, this is the real Sean Boonstra. No help, no crew. I am in the studio, or what's going to be a studio, and I've done the lighting myself. So don't send your letters of complaint to my crew. Just address them to me. This is just me on my own. So I'm hoping you're going to Excuse amateur hour because I've been on lockdown just like the rest of you for weeks on end. I barely got a haircut before I made this video. I, I mean, the barber shop just opened a couple of days ago and my hair was so, it hadn't been that long since the 1970s. I could just about pull it down and, and chew on it. So I barely even got a haircut in time to make this video for you. And I, I warned Andy, this is going to be amateur hour. So here it is. I'm doing this on my iPhone. Here's what I want to do today. I want to read a favorite Bible passage. Many of you have heard me preach on it before. Then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to share for a few minutes what's been on my heart as of late, what I think God might be trying to teach the remnant church. So here's the Bible passage, Revelation 18, verse 1. You, you know this one. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. The earth was illuminated with his glory. Let, let's pray. Father in heaven, we're sitting in a moment when everybody's panicking and they're not sure what to expect next. You described a moment that was coming where men's hearts would fail them for fear. And for some people, that moment has already arrived. They don't know what to expect. We'd ask that you'd teach us what you would have your church learn at this moment. 
that we would understand that our brightest days are just ahead of us when we light up the whole planet with the glory of Jesus Christ. Give me the ability to think clearly and to speak clearly now, for I ask it in your name. Amen. Well, the story I'm going to tell you is an old one. I'm going to take a little risk here. And I'm guessing that some of you, if not most of you, have heard this story at some point. I think I've even heard it being told in ASI circles in recent years. But I want to share it one more time on the off chance that somebody listening today hasn't heard this story. And I'm hoping you'll be patient with me because I'm starting to suspect that God is taking advantage of a global crisis to teach his remnant church something very important. If we would just slow down and listen. And I'm coming to the conviction that what happens next in this verse history to some degree is actually up to us. I mean, not that much is up to us in this universe. I mean, you and I don't have a lot of say in how the history of this world plays out because we're not in control. That's the point of Bible prophecy, or at least one of the points of Bible prophecy. It teaches us that the kingdom of Christ is going to come no matter what anybody does. Nobody's going to stop that from happening. Not the kingdoms of this world, not the determined efforts of fallen angels, not even you and me. I mean, you could put up all the resistance you want, but the moment will absolutely come when the kingdoms of this world, the way the book of Revelation puts it, will become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. It's going to happen. So some things are predetermined. But within the boundaries of what has been predetermined, God has allowed us a tiny degree of choice. For example, it is up to you if you want to accept the terms of the covenant and become a part of the family of Christ. And it's up to you how you choose to live the few short moments you have between right now, this moment, and either the moment you draw your last breath, or better yet, the, the moment that Jesus actually appears in the eastern sky to take us home. That is up to you. Some things are up to us because God values free moral agency. He values the freedom to choose. So we can affect some things. And while the Bible is clear that nobody knows the day or hour of Christ's return and that Jesus will return in such an hour as you think not, there is also an indication in the Bible that you and I can actually speed things up. There are indications that the prophetic timeline is, well, ever so slightly elastic, ever so slightly adjustable. Let me show you what I mean from a well-known passage. You know this one. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter is predicting the second coming of Christ, and he says something very interesting. You, you know this one. I'll start reading in verse 10, and if you happen to have a Bible, open it up and follow along. Here we go. 2 Peter 3 and verse 10. It says, let me get my bifocals on, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. In other words, he's coming at a moment when the world doesn't expect it. They don't see it coming. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are therein will be burned up. That much is predetermined. That's going to happen. Nobody can stop it. But then Peter mentions something we can control. Verse 11. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, you can't change that, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now listen to this, verse 12. Looking for and hastening, that's speeding up, the coming of the day of God. So the second coming of Christ and the dissolution of this sinful planet, that's out of our control. But the timing of it, 
Well, Peter suggests there's something you can do about it. If you look in the book Acts of the Apostles, you'll notice that Ellen White would tend to agree with Peter, and of course she would. And I'm going to read this passage at some length right now because it's that important, and it underlines the moment we find ourselves living in right now. And after I've read that, I'll get to an all-important story from the history of our church that you really need to pay attention to. But here we go. Acts of the Apostles, page 600. All right? The church is God's agency for the proclamation of truth, empowered by him to do a special work. We've been raised up for something specific. And if she is loyal to him, obedient to all his commandments, there will dwell within her the excellency of divine grace. If she will be true to her allegiance, if she will honor the Lord God of Israel, there is no power that can stand against her. And so we see again. When Ellen White uses that painful word, if, that you and I might be holding up the second coming of Christ, which is the very next point she makes. She continues, still Acts of the Apostles, page 600. Zeal for God and his cause moved the disciples to bear witness to the gospel with mighty power. Should not a like zeal fire our hearts with a determination to tell the story of redeeming love of Christ and him crucified? Now listen to this. Here's the same point Peter made. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of the Savior. So it's absolutely true. There's not much in this universe that's actually in our control because we are weak and feeble and broken by sin, and we're virtually powerless in a universe where God's will is going to be performed no matter what anybody does. But then there's one tiny thing God says we can, well, not control, but at least influence. And that one tiny thing is the return of Jesus Christ. So here's what I want you to consider right now as the world is experiencing a crisis unlike anything our generation has ever faced. Now, to be sure, there are still some crises in recent past history that make this one kind of pale by comparison. We seem a little soft compared to past generations, right? Past generations had the Great Depression or the Second World War. But for this generation, this might prove to be our testing ground. I don't know for sure yet because we haven't seen the end of this thing yet, but this might just be the crisis of a lifetime for our generation. It's starting to look like it's not ever going back to life as usual. Who knows what's going to happen? And while I almost hate to quote a rather notorious politician to you, well, you should never let a good crisis go to waste because, well, what if this right now ends up being God's way of readjusting our priorities as a remnant church? What if this is God's way of getting us back on track? I mean, right now, we've been forced, like everybody else, to rethink almost everything. In recent weeks, we've been stripped of our ability to assemble publicly. And from a personal perspective, working here at The Voice of Prophecy, I mean, we had hundreds of synchronized evangelistic meetings suddenly shut down as various governments across this continent started to forbid public meetings. And now with the economy suffering untold damage from a national shutdown and tens of millions finding themselves out of work, we have no idea if we as a church are going to have the same kinds of resources we used to have and the same ability to work with relative ease and simplicity. And now that we've all been locked in our homes, like everybody in the country, and now that we've all had to live our lives through Skype or Zoom, 
and even the GC session has had to be canceled. It is no longer business as usual. And you got to wonder, is God trying to teach us something? Because let's be honest, you and I as God's church haven't always done a great job of sticking to the one and only thing that God ever asked the church to do. And while I want to be really careful right now that I do not suggest that God caused this pandemic, I, I, I want you to consider whether or not he might not be using it to advance his own agenda and to make some important adjustments to our agenda. Which brings me to the story that I promised I would tell you, and I'm guessing most of you might know it. This is something that was happening at the turn of last century while Ellen White was still alive, and this was happening roughly half a century after the church had been formally organized, rather, in 1863. In the first few years after the birth of our church, evangelism was actually doing pretty well much to the surprise of some of the naysayers who were completely against the idea of organizing the church at all. So in the 1870s, you had these huge Adventist camp meetings, which kind of resembled the big tent revivals run by non-Adventist preachers like Dwight L. Moody. And during those years, near the very birth of this movement in a formal sense in 1863, in those early years, the church in North America was actually growing at about are you ready for this? 12% a year. And it tripled church membership in the space of one decade. So that would be like going from roughly 1 million church members in North America today to 3 million by the year 2030. It's the kind of growth that would surprise us today. And it's the kind of growth that most of us, frankly, have kind of given up on. But I'll let you in on a little secret. It was also the kind of growth that those people living back then in the 1870s also eventually gave up on. Why? Because we allowed ourselves to get distracted. And to be sure, we were distracted by some very good and very important things. Things like the opening of schools and the establishment of hospitals and colleges and publishing houses. All of those things were very, very important for this remnant movement. I mean, who can argue with those things? They are essential to the Adventist story. And the way they were designed in the very beginning, they were supposed to directly complement the work of evangelism, the work of preaching the three angels' messages. But as you and I know, Human beings have a very short attention span, and the sinful human race, I like to say, is probably the goldfish of the universe. We seem to be unable to maintain any kind of focus on anything important for any real length of time. And sadly, the remnant church is no exception. We're just as human as anybody else. And before long, those institutions, as important, I don't want to give the wrong idea, they were important. But as important as they were, they eventually became the whole point of the exercise, and public evangelism just kind of faded into the background. So, by 1900, within a single generation of the birth of this important movement, we actually found ourselves with rapidly diminishing returns, going from hundreds or even thousands of converts at a time down to tens of converts and then in many places down to the single digits, which is kind of where we are today. And just like today, back then, we began to convince ourselves that the golden years of evangelism were now in the past and they would never come back. Even though, 
even though this church was using the same New Testament methods that Bible-believing Christians had been using for the last 2,000 years. And even though we can see through history those methods have always, always, always worked. But instead of examining what was going wrong in those years, we simply told ourselves that times had changed and people had changed, even though when it comes to the biggest issues that human beings deal with, I mean, things like sin and guilt and the meaning of life, all those big, important existential questions, people haven't changed. They've always been interested in the very same things. And God's word has always appealed to every sinful human heart. Well, every sinful human heart that was responding to the prompting of the spirit, that is. But we told ourselves that times had changed and people had changed, and we simply rolled over and accepted defeat. And it's not like the world wasn't getting ready for the final crisis back then at that moment, because it absolutely was. If you go back and look at the history, Jesus was ready to come. In fact, by 1904, not long before my grandfather was born, in 1904, there were two separate bills under consideration in the American Congress calling for some kind of Sunday law to be passed. I mean, folks, we were this close to watching the final crisis unfold, and we were this close to the fulfillment of the last hasp of Revelation 13. The moment in those years was absolutely ripe for Jesus to come. And that's exactly what Ellen White said back in 1913 when she wrote these words in the Review and Herald. And in here, she repeats the very same thought that Peter shared when he talked about hastening the coming of Christ. I want you to listen to this very carefully. All right. Review and Herald, 1913. And honestly, this is a concept Ellen White had brought up many times in the past, but after the turn of last century, when our growth in the church went from, well, explosive growth to almost nothing, well, she wrote this, and it was an awfully, awfully, tragic thing to have to say. She writes, by giving the gospel to the world, it is in our power to hasten the coming of the day of God. Had the church of Christ done her appointed work as the Lord ordained, the whole world would before this have been warned and the Lord Jesus would have come to the earth in power and great glory. That's one of the most heart breaking things she ever wrote. Jesus could have been here by now. So in other words, we blew it. We might be the remnant church, but we blew it. You and I could have been in heaven right now, worshiping in the literal presence of Jesus, but we blew it. We threw it away. We failed to seize that moment. We failed to be doing the one thing that God actually asked us to do. Now, I don't know exactly how this works. But part of me wonders, you know, if we had been faithful in those years, if we had done what we were asked, if we had not been distracted and diverted, I wonder, would I have been born? Would you have been born in the earth made new and not in the middle of the heartbreak of the 20th century? Where would I have been born? So, historically, you get a few years right before the death of Ellen White, where she repeatedly, repeatedly urges the church to go back to doing the one and only thing that actually matters, to get back to the proclamation of the three angels' messages. And then something absolutely remarkable happens, and this is one of my favorite stories from the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
our general conference president at the beginning of the 1900s was a guy by the name of Arthur Grosvenor Daniels. And I've often suspected that most of us just call him A.G. Daniels so that we don't have to try pronouncing that middle name with its silent S anywhere in public and risk mispronouncing it. A.G. Daniels had the great misfortune, I suppose, of presiding over the demise of Adventist evangelism and watching the remnant movement of God start to dwindle in its impact. Who in the world would want to be president during those years? This was a time when we practically had more administrators than evangelists. And during those years, our primary focus was on the institutions of the church. And in 1909, at the GC session in Washington, D.C., A.G. Daniels was able to report that the church was actually still growing at about 4%. Now, that's not 12% like it was in the 1870s, but still pretty respectable, right? 4%. Not bad growth. I mean, if somebody says the GDP is growing at 4%, we're very excited. That's a great number. Except there was a problem with that figure. That 4% was greatly inflated by the success that the church was having overseas. The number was nowhere near 4% here in North America. And A.G. Daniels at that meeting did not mention the fact that church growth in North America had dipped to just 1%, which is roughly where we still see it today, roughly. Now, if you want something to compare that 1% number to, the growth of the whole American population during that same period of time was 2%, which means that the population was actually growing twice as fast as the church in those years. Now, I want to pause and I want to say something really important because I happen to be an evangelist and there are some big misconceptions about how to gauge evangelism that are in circulation. There's something I got to say. So let me just take a little sidebar here and divert for just a moment. Sometimes, and I want to underline the word sometimes, sometimes we put too much stock in numbers And sometimes we're tempted to judge an evangelist by the number of baptisms that evangelist gets in a five-week series of meetings. Even though, by the way, the five-week series was considered a lightning campaign by the earliest Avenus because they pulled into town and worked a city for months at a time. In fact, my predecessor here, HMS Richards, he used to go into a city and preach for 100 nights in a row without a break. So the five-week series is really a lightning campaign, and people were skeptical that you could produce results in that short of a time. Now we tend, though, in our day and age, to place a lot of emphasis on what happens in those five weeks. Even though public preaching, those five weeks, that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what we're supposed to do when we try to reach a city. Today, we tend to judge an evangelist strictly on the number of baptisms that they produce in 30, 35, 40 days. And we judge an evangelist sometimes even when we did nothing to support them, and we treated it like a spectator event instead of just one small piece of the evangelistic cycle that all of us are responsible for. So, sometimes I think we put too much stock in numbers. And I also want to tell you this. The moment is coming when you and I will get no more results. We won't. It's not going to produce any more baptisms. 
But we're going to have to keep doing this work anyway, because you can search the Bible cover to cover, and you'll never find God saying, you're only supposed to preach the message if you get results. I mean, listen, folks, Noah preached for 120 years, and at the end of the day, he only had his own kids, his own family on that ark. And you and I both know that if he had stopped preaching for lack of results, he would have been sinning against God. So we are on the hook whether there's results or not. This is what we're supposed to be doing. All by themselves, numbers are not an indication that something is wrong or something is right. But back in 1909, the numbers absolutely were an indication that something was wrong. And we know that because Ellen White said so. And she pinpointed things like our love of institutionalism and our love of theological debate to some of the primary causes of our failure. We were distracted. And she told the brethren, would you please get back to work? Now, this is when we get one of the most incredible stories in Adventist history. A.G. Daniels, in response to Ellen White's command, go out there and do more evangelism, he planned a great big conference, a five-day meeting to deliberate the problem of evangelism in the cities and the diminishing returns. And in planning those five days of meetings, he figured, man, my work is done, right? We're going to have a big convention, another committee, and my work here is done. After he made those plans, certain Ellen White would be pleased with them, of course, he got on a train and he went to go visit Ellen White in Elmshaven. He was sure she'd be delighted with what he had done. But when he got there, if you can imagine this, when he got there, she wouldn't come to the door and she wouldn't let him in the house. This is the GC president and she wouldn't let him in. Why? Because he still wasn't doing what God told us to do. He wasn't doing evangelism. He was talking about it, but he wasn't doing it. And so with his tail between his legs, A.G. Daniels experienced a moment of divine reset. And he went back to his home and actually started doing evangelism. And that led to one of the biggest periods of church growth in the history of this entire movement. Which goes to prove something. When something is wrong with our mission, when something is wrong with the church, there's a pretty good chance it's not because the culture of the world has changed. I know we love to blame the postmoderns and the millennials now, it's, it's not going poorly because the world has changed. Human nature at its core has remained the same regardless of culture. It's not because the culture has changed. Well, it's because the culture of the church has changed. So let me ask you this, because this is really the point that I'm driving at today before I run out of time. Personally, I'm not convinced that this crisis, the COVID thing, is the final crisis, even though it's far from finished, and, and who knows where this is going to go. I mean, we're watching our liberties being eroded by the minute, and I've had a few surprises in recent days through this whole thing. I don't know where it's going to go. I'm not convinced yet, and we're looking at Revelation 13, not yet. But what if this is the moment God sends us packing like A.G. Daniels, because we're not doing what he asked us to do? What if this is our moment for a big reset? Because in recent months, we've already experienced, this is like a practice run, we've already experienced what it's like to lose our ability to meet in public. And we're watching our financial resources evaporate. In some parts of the world, I understand, giving's already dropped by about 40%. We've been locked in our homes, and we've had opportunities to examine our hearts and listen for the voice of God's Spirit. What if this is our last chance to get it right? To focus on the one thing God asked us to do. Take a look at your neighbors right now. 
the crisis is changing your neighbors. Neighborhoods are starting to become neighborhoods again. I mean, my neighborhood is changing. People are actually thinking about each other. People are putting these teddy bears in the windows so that the kids who can't go play with other kids have something to do as they walk down the sidewalk with their parents. They can count the teddy bears. People are changing. My neighbors are discovering what's really important in their lives. What a shame if the Remnant Church doesn't do the same thing right now. Remember the only reason for this movement. There's only one. God raised up the Seventh-day Adventist Church for one thing only. This is in Testimonies, Volume 9. This is page 19. They, speaking of the Seventh-day Adventists, they have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angels' messages. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. People are changing. I've been getting notes from people on social media, people I haven't heard from in more than 30 years. I, I got a note today. What does the Bible say about what's going on? Is there anything here about the mark of the beast? What, what is it that we're supposed to be learning? That, and that came just today from people that didn't have a religious bone in their bodies just two weeks ago. And then I got this one from somebody I hadn't heard from since high school, 30, I won't tell you how many years. She heard that I was now a believer, and she sent me this note. Here's what she said. Hi, Sean. So now that I have way too much time on my hands these days, and with what is going on in the world, I, I wonder if you have any reference to the current situation. I have wondered and tried to think of the messages or lessons I need to take away from this. Is this Mother Nature's reset? Thinning the herd? I knew we were due for some sort of pause in our lives. This hits everyone. I have so many other thoughts about it. I tend to dig deep with stuff like this, just wondering your perspective from a biblical sense. Not one indication, not one indication of interest in Scripture till now. Personal, she writes, time to reflect, to move forward. What do you think? Are we being punished? What do you think your neighbors are thinking about and talking about right now? They're sensing it's not business as usual. They're sensing some kind of big reset on this planet. And it's changing them, and it's making them more interested in what we have to offer than any generation that has ever come before. Even up till now, evangelistic audiences I have discovered are bigger than they have been in the past and far more responsive. I have watched audiences in the last few years get up out of their seats and start an altar call on me, hoping there would be an opportunity to make a decision, basically saying, "Would you? that's enough, preacher, just stop, will you? We'll join the Seventh-day Adventist church. That was before this crisis, and now I'm getting unsolicited letters from people saying, what does the Bible say? It's changing your neighbors. Is it going to change us? Are we going to let it reset our agenda and our priorities? I don't know about you. I don't want to miss this opportunity. I've spent a lot of hours in the quiet of the night re-examining my heart, trying to say, Lord, what's next? Am I ready for what's coming? I want to be found faithful, and I want to light up the whole world with the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us new eyes to see the world right now the way that you look at it, to hear the cries of people around us and to share with them the good news of the salvation of Jesus Christ. And with our courage racing in our hearts, we will go and speak to someone and tell them what we know. For we pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen.
What a blessing we have had this morning. From Sean's message to Yvonne's song, What a Blessing God is Good. I want you out there to know, and I'm sure your hearts are bursting with excitement for the gospel. Sean led us in a very heart-searching sermon. And we at the desk, my co-host and I, have been almost jumping out of our seats, just praising the Lord. This is a message for our time. And we all have something we want to share. We could use much more time, but unfortunately, we will not be able to. But I want to read a quote. The quote is this, and it's taken from Evangelism, page 696. We may have to remain here in this world because of insubordination many more years, as did the children of Israel. But for Christ's sake, his people should not add sin to sin by charging God with the consequences of their own wrong course of action. Mark Sandoval talked about cause and effect. And so these two come together. And so I'd like my co-hosts, as we've thought about this, we have several questions that we want the audience to think about and my co-host to think about. And, the, and um, Sean brought these out. He says, what will God have our church learn at this moment? What if it is our last chance to get it right? How would you answer that question, Patty? I won't put you on the spot, but our hearts are full, and I know you've got some answer that you'd like to give. Well, I've been thinking about that. This COVID situation is something we all say is unprecedented in our lifetime, and maybe in the history of the world, because the whole world has been connected in what's happening here. And as we've rapidly experienced the um, diminishing of our personal freedoms, it can't help but make us wonder what's ahead and what's coming in our world. And I really appreciated Sean's emphasis on what is God wanting to teach us right now? And I think he's given us a precious opportunity, a window into what's coming with the challenges, but also an opportunity to get to know Jesus, to spend time in the word. He's removed every distraction in our lives except one, which is our phones. <laughs> and he gave us the thing that we use the most in spades. So that's what we still have. But I think it's a wonderful opportunity right now to prepare for what's coming. Amen. Thank you, Patty. Rodney, share with us. What's you know, about? again, my heart is just so full of so many things that I would love to share. But the one thing that really struck my heart directly was that God wants us to slow down. Yes and listen. I'm reminded, you know, it says in Psalms, be still and know that I am God. And in the world where we're often so busy and clamoring for this and that and the other thing, just to slow down and care for people. That's one thing that I hope the church can really learn. I, I fear that there could be people who are slipping between the cracks, so to speak. Yes. And I believe it's a call for us as a Seventh-day Adventist church to really understand the value of church. And it's not just a building. Church is a community. Yes, yes. And I just also want to add that when God gave us a message, He meant for us to actually listen and act upon it. And that message was given to us in our history 
because God wanted to have an end-time people who would reflect his character. Or emphasis on health, diet, and um, the gospel is not accidental. God wants to get to us through our minds. We had some members in action on healing of the mind. It's his desire that our bodies will be healed, our minds will be healed. And so that's why our team came up with a pledge, a commitment. And so I want at this time, Ronnie, to, to give us again that information, how we can, can access this. Again, we want to encourage those of you who have been watching with us to really take it seriously that we have been called to take the three angels' messages to the world, and we've seen a beautiful blend of health and gospel presentations. We want to encourage you again to engage with us in a deep, thoughtful study of the book Ministry of Healing. So please take out your phone at this point, text us 58632, text the word ASI Health, and we will reply to that message and you will be blessed. Patty, please take us out in prayer. All right, I'm going to invite you to join in prayer with me. Kind and loving Father, we're sobered and thrilled at the same time by the times in which we live, and we pray that Jesus will draw close to each one and that we will have him in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.